calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 20. Sal knew before she arrived that there would be a cottage at the end of the trail. She had half expected gingerbread, given the setup. But when she finally found it, the little house was an ordinary squat thing with a thatched roof, its shutters hanging askew. Light flickered from within, throwing shadows on shadows. It was completely silent, as if it had slept for a hundred years while the dark wood grew around it, like it was still sleeping. She hung back for a moment, thinking through her options. She could continue to linger here in the creepy forest with its catching branches and dark whispers, hoping the others would somehow come to the same place. On the other hand, there were children on the line. How could she wait around when kids were in danger? But back on the first hand, how much help could she be to those kids if she stormed the cottage alone and got into trouble herself? She thought through the same few terrible options over and over. There was one more choice. She should at least try to get a better idea of what was going on without mounting a full-on assault. She would make better decisions with better information. Sal approached a window as slowly as she could so as not to wake the house or anything else. She peered in through a crack where the shutter was loose. It was enough for a clear view of what waited inside the dwelling. A pair of cages hung suspended over a roaring hearth, and inside them, a pair of children shoveling fists full of grubs and straw into their mouths. The little girl was alert, the boy less so. The shadows inside were constantly shifting. A touch fell on her shoulder. Sal whirled startled and found herself facing a, what, a woman? Full of breasts and full of belly, round as if she'd been made from balls pressed together. Her face was blank, just as smooth and curved as the rest of her. Well, this must be Mother Goose, then. Mother Goose raised her hand and the world changed. Sal stood in a sunny glade before a charming little house, 
Perhaps it could have been the same stone cottage if only it had been kept up, with flowers planted all around and brightly painted doors and shutters. The sky was blue, birds sang, a pair of butterflies meandered by. The air smelled like something sweet baking. And the faceless woman before Sal had changed too. She was a full person now, with rosy cheeks and a full head of curly white hair. Her back was stooped a little, and her eyes had a kindly twinkle that reminded Sal of the librarian at her elementary school. She even wore the same kind of loose denim skirt and paisley blouse. When the woman spoke, it was without a hint of a German accent. Well, dear heart, you look famished. Won't you come inside and have a bite to eat? She took Sal's wrist to lead her into the little house, and Sal realized suddenly that she was hungry, excruciatingly hungry. The delicious smell intensified. Thank you, Sal said, that's very thoughtful. How long it had been since she had entered the forest, anyway? The light had never changed, and of course her phone didn't work here. Because it was, she pulled her hand away. Stop it, she said, stop. Let those kids go. Mother Goose turned and put a hand to her own chest. My dear, what are you saying? Aren't you hungry? Don't you want something to? And God help her, it was true. Sal was practically starving. But it was magic. This was magic. I'm from the society that put you in this prison, and we've learned a lot since then. So if you don't let those kids go, I'm gonna do a lot worse to you than this. The beautiful day, the charming cottage, the sweet old lady all rippled, like the reflection on a pond when someone has skipped a stone across it. The woman's mouth grew vast and full of teeth. Just a bite, she wheedled. Sal's hand went for her service pistol. She fired at the monster once, then heard the distinctive whine of a ricochet as if she'd fired at a stone wall. She clicked the safety on and used the pistol as a bludgeon, striking at the monster's head. That won't do at all, said Mother Goose in her sweet old lady voice. Come inside, you must be so hungry. The ground rumbled as if something enormous were moving nearby. Sal spun to see the house rising up from its place, dirt showering from its underside. It wasn't mere levitation. The house stood up on two legs, powerful and clawed like an enormous ostriches. It must have been 30 feet tall in all, and loomed over the two of them like some ridiculous headless dinosaur. The house tilted as if it were looking at Sal. Slowly, it moved until the doorway hovered directly over her. She held her breath, forgetting about the witch, about the children, about anything but what it felt like in the moment before a house falls on you. And then the house swooped down and gobbled her up. Four. Perry and Menchu traveled together in silence, punctuated by occasional outbursts from the angel. So what happened was... Or, I want to be completely honest with you, or most mysteriously, you can't think Asante is bad. He trailed off every time, unable to conjure the words he needed. For his part, the priest spoke little, but in his head, the same few thoughts and feelings whirled around and around, a merry-go-round he wished he could stop. Perry and Asante had been talking to one another. Which meant what, exactly? A terrible suspicion burned in Menchu's heart, growing hotter with each minute Perry stalled. Just get it out, he said at last. 
If it's taking you this long to find the right words, there probably isn't a better way to say it. Harry sighed, a showy sigh. You're right, and of course you're right. The thing is, and here he paused again, so long that Manchu thought it was another false start. I'm on team four with Asante. Manchu stopped short. Team four? Did the cardinal authorize you to- No, Harry said. At first he kept shuffling ahead, but slowed and stopped when it became clear Manchu was not following him. We took it into our own hands. He held out his empty hands by way of demonstration. Manchu felt he was suffocating under an avalanche of the terrible implications of this knowledge. So you and Asante have been, what, doing magic together? Who else is involved? Then he growled the answer to his own question. Francis. Perry was the picture of misery. Yeah, it was important we, for how long? Manchu asked. What he meant was how long have you been keeping this from me? How long had Asante been lying to his face? And after he had been so plagued with guilt for keeping Hana's existence from her, from his whole team. A long time, since a little after Dublin. Manchu leaned against a tree for strength. The cell, no. Perry brightened as if the worst was past. No, nobody else has any idea. Why? Manchu asked. He meant, why would Asante do this? But that was not the question Perry chose to answer. Asante's heading to London to look for Hana, Perry said. She doesn't know I'm here. She'll probably be mad when she finds out. I've helped them to get ready for this fight as much as I can, but I don't think the three of us can handle Hana alone. Before Guatemala, I thought if we lost, there would be time to call for help. You and Sal might swing into the rescue. But Hana's moving the timetable up. I don't know what she's trying yet, but it'll be big. And if we failed, there won't be a second chance. Manchu held his temper in check, though there was no speaking for his blood pressure. What is she planning? Um, Hana or Asante? Anyone. Manchu's voice was low and dangerous. He had never understood why Jacob might want to wrestle an angel, but he was getting a pretty good idea. Uh, Asante wants to stop her, I guess. As for Hana, we don't run in the same crowd. But it's like I said, she wants to balance the project, keep you from sinking. Only, he squirmed under Manchu's assessing gaze. But before Manchu could continue his interrogation, a sound came from the distance through the trees. Rumble, shriek. Sal, Perry took off like a shot, hardly even dodging the grasping branches and biting twigs as he went. Manchu followed him as best he could, though it was slower and more effortful than it would have been in years past. They followed the crashing noise they'd heard, arriving at a clearing in time to see a strange, enormous two-legged beast loping away from them. They gaped at the lumbering, impossible thing, Asante and Team Four forgotten for the moment. Is that a walking house? Manchu asked at last. I think so, Perry answered. I think we've found what we're looking for. They watched it crashing through the trees. We can't lose sight of it, Manchu said, or we'll lose track of it entirely, like we lost Sal before. Perry nodded. Good point, let's keep moving. Sal woke slowly, brought back from sleep by a chorus of screaming discomforts. She was hot, 
Her muscles were knotted tight. There was something thin like ribs pressing into her spine. And she was hungry. Oh, so very, very, very hungry. She opened her eyes and discovered that she had joined the children, swinging now in a cage of her own. It was hardly larger than a birdcage, just big enough for her to sit with her knees pushed into her chest and her elbows pinned to her sides. The whole place was swaying like a sailboat on the ocean. The cages swung gently from side to side. The faceless figure of Mother Goose, no longer disguised as a kind old woman, shambled toward her, then poked her with a single bony finger. Hunger rolled through Sal at the touch. Sal had been hungry before, of course. She was familiar with many of its flavors. The hangry of a missed lunch on a busy day, the twitching pang of going running before breakfast, the siren lust for a 2 a.m. slice of pizza after a late night out with her old friends. The thing that consumed her now was a whole other genus of hunger. She was dizzy, her stomach roiled and groaned, her limbs felt weak and heavy. Her fingers and toes tingled sharp. Her tongue was dry and her head pounded. What the hell, she gasped. The feeling receded slowly, but did not go away. Mother Goose poked her again in a new wave of hunger filter. The witch offered Sal a bowl full of some things that were almost like food. Leaves, scraps of leather, clods of sod with worms still writhing inside. Am I supposed to eat this? Sal asked. Her vision shimmered, and she saw the kindly old woman offering her a slice of New York pizza dripping orange grease. Take it, you'll feel better, said Mother Goose. She looked toward the children. The little girl was watching her. She imperceptibly shook her head. Sal took the pizza and let it fall. The illusion broke as it did, and by the time it hit the flames below, it had turned back into leaves, leather, sod. Tisk. Mother Goose shook her sweet head, already shimmering back to facelessness. Well, enough time alone, and you'll be begging me for such things. The final scraps of the illusion rippled and broke apart. Sal faced the pale, round creature again. Sal began to understand. The monster must be a wraith made of hunger, or perhaps it had learned to feed off hunger in long ago centuries. It brought its victims here to starve them slowly. In the fullness of its power, it had been able to lull its victims into a happy death by making them think they were eating an endless amount of treats. But now, confined by the society for so long, the creature had grown weak. It could only fool its victims long enough to lure them in, not to keep them fooled into thinking they were fat and happy. Probably it preferred the sharper, quicker hunger of children. But beggars can't be choosers. She wondered how old this thing was anyway. As old as fairy tales? Older? Had this thing existed side by side with man and magic for as long as they had known of one another? The cottage lurched once hard. It dropped, and then it was still. The witch turned and left the cottage. For the first time since she had woken up, Sal felt like she could breathe. Hey, Sal pitched her voice to be as quiet and friendly as she knew how. Hey, are you Gudrun? The little girl stared at her. Her teary eyes were almost empty, almost. A flicker of fight stayed in them, but she didn't speak to Sal. Right, right, German. Do you speak English? Sal asked, though not with much hope. The girl stared and then shook her head no. 
Sal bunched her fists around the bars of her cage. Talking wasn't going to work, that much was clear. Instead, she began an elaborate pantomime, pointing to where Mother Goose had left, pointing to her mouth, elaborate shrug to show a question. The girl bit her lip. Then she pointed to her brother and to herself. And then up. Above them hung a stone figure, very much like the witch, round, smooth, faceless. It was tied to the rafters with straw and leather thongs. Gudrun pantomimed herself digging, pulling something up from the ground. She pointed at the figure again. Well, that was cryptic. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Gerald met Asante and Francis at the main entrance to the British Museum, where there was a lift that could take Francis's wheelchair up the steps. The cool breath of London at night followed them in. The caretaker hurried them inside with a limp. That was new since the last time Asante had seen him in person, not that that had been recent. And so were those glasses, the kind that turned into sunglasses when it was bright, but never really became clear when it wasn't. Asante gave a moment to a short meditation on age and the frailness of the flesh. Thank you for making the time to meet me, old friend, she said. I'm sorry to only ever come to you for favors. Oh, it's my pleasure, he said, 
He finished locking the door, then turned a courtly bow on Francis. And it's a delight to see that the youth of today are still interested in these dusty topics of ours. Francis nodded back. Solving the mysteries of the past is its own reward, she replied. Asante brushed her skirt straight. If it's all the same to you, I'd like to begin looking around. Of course, of course. Gerald waved them farther inside. Please make yourselves at home. There aren't any visitors left at this hour, and the guards know not to bother us. The halls of the museum were cold and echoed with Asante's footsteps as she swept through the great court and toward the galleries full of antiquities. Francis wheeled behind her, only a hair more slowly. You know what you're looking for? Gerald asked. After a fashion, Asante replied. She sighed. This task would have been infinitely easier with the spectacle she'd given to Menchu. But she still had other, less elegant ways of finding out what they needed to know. Francis? Francis took a device from the knapsack on her lap. It was an inelegant thing, a cowbell streaked with rust. Francis pricked her finger, then tapped the bell with the smeared blood. No sound emerged. Not here, Francis said. She pushed her glasses up with a knuckle. Let's try again from somewhere else. Asante pushed Francis's wheelchair this time. They walked to the next room down. Francis tapped the bell with a bloody finger again. Nothing happened again. Gerald coughed. Uh, is this meant to? His British reserve didn't allow him to outright call them insane or ask what the hell they thought they were doing. He'd only let them in, so Asante had led him to believe, so that they could examine a particular artifact for nebulous research purposes. Asante smiled thinly. The British Museum all but throbbed with power taken from other lands and other peoples. Much of that power was symbolic, it was some of it represented by wealth, but no small amount of it was long dormant magic as well, a fact the curators did their best to euphemize and diminish. I'm afraid I can't tell you much, Gerald, just that this is not theory, not the way that you know it. I won't get in trouble for letting your parasorceresses in here, will I? He chuckled to chase away the reality of the situation. Nobody will ever know we were here. Francis assured him. Let's try the next room. Nothing turned up in that gallery either. Nor in the fourth. In the fifth room, though, Francis tapped the bell and something else chimed from somewhere close by. She tapped again while Wasanti hurried through the display cases trying to identify the source of the sound. Finally, she said, I have it over here. The object was unremarkable by the standards of the British Museum. It was only a simple ostrich egg. Roughly the size of a cookie jar, with etchings scratched into its surface, depicting sphinxes. It was not painted, not inlaid with gold or jewels. There was a hole in the top. The sign said this Punic egg was a vessel, and had once had a mouthpiece and supports to hold it upright. This was only partly the truth. We'll need a closer look at this artifact, Asante told Gerald, if you don't mind, of course. Gerald's eyes flashed white above his glasses. I prefer to take it from here, he said. He smashed the case with a fist and grabbed the egg within, tucking it under his arm like a football. Asante's eyes narrowed. Anna. She reached into her bag and took out a slim wand, a blade on one end and a feather on the other. We were expecting you. Asante brandished the wand, chanting and tracing symbols in the air. Gerald, or Hannah in Gerald's body, pushed Asante square in the chest before the incantation was complete. 
Asante went flying across the room, crashing into a display case. The wand clattered to the ground, snapping the feather. The pulsing symbols in the air fizzed and dissipated. While Asante reeled, Francis hurled the cowbell at Hannah's head. Hannah kicked out at her, pushing the wheelchair across the room. Francis's head cracked against a priceless Greek urn to the detriment of both vessels. You don't understand, Hannah said. None of you. I tried to tell you the project's at risk. Your whole world's in danger. My small attempts at balancing have failed. Now only major adjustments will do serious realignments. Hence, the city eater. Asante staggered to her feet, shaking off the stars. She had to get to the wand. There was still time to lock this down. She felt around for the wand. Her hand closed around it. She stood unsteady, bracing for the next round. But Hannah was gone, in Gerald's body. And she had taken the egg with her. Five. The walking house stopped short and then settled into place in one smooth motion. Menchu and Perry hurried toward it as if it might vanish. Not that a house can usually up and vanish, but they clearly weren't playing by the normal rules of physics anymore. Up close, the house was ramshackle, speaking less of poverty than of outright abandonment. The thatching was falling away, stones in the foundation were loose or outright missing. It was a miracle that it held together even as much as it did. Supernatural forces were clearly at work. If the giant bird legs hadn't given that away earlier. There was no sign of the mighty legs and talons that had taken it a half a mile or more through the forest. To look at the house now, you'd have sworn it was precisely where it had been for a hundred years, five hundred. A pale figure emerged from the house, nosing around the trees as if it smelled something curious. Menchu would have staked his life that the children were here. He wasn't sure if he'd rather discover that Sal was too or not. At any rate, it was time to act. Menchu nudged Perry. Give me a minute and then try to look inside the house, he murmured. I'm going to distract this thing for you, whatever it is. Then Manchu approached the house and its occupant. The blank-faced figure looked at him, still for a moment, then shook itself. The world shimmered and she became a sweet-faced abuelita, nut-skinned and beaming. Bien es hambre, she asked. Manchu cocked his fist and punched her as hard as he could. She stumbled back. The veneer of sweetness popped like a bubble. That round, solid figure, pale and caked in mud, grew until she loomed over him. Manchu lowered his stance and put his hands up, ready to dodge whatever attack the creature had in store for him. From behind him came the thrashing sound of Perry making a run for the cottage. Hurry, he thought, along with a helpless, reflexive, God be with you. Perry crashed through the door of the cottage and stopped short at the edge of the pit of fire, looking from Sal to the boy to the girl and back again. Ah, I see what's going on here. I'll get you out, he said. He climbed onto the stone at the edge of the pit and pulled the door off Sal's cage. Sal fell out and into his arms and safely onto the floor, then writhed for a moment, overcome by the prickling of blood flowing back into her limbs after spending so long in such a cramped space. Perry pulled the door off the little boy's cage next. The sound, like snapping bones, gave Sal the willies. She helped the boy swing out over the flames while Perry attended to the girl. Where's Father Manchu? Sal asked Perry. 
being distracting? I don't know. Once both children were freed, the two of them clung together, exclaiming over each other's injuries in small voices. They looked from Sal to Perry and back again with mingled hopefulness and fear. Mother Goose loomed at the door. She was huge and round, her blank face empty of expression, but her stance still signaling enormous rage. Her head swiveled, taking in Perry, the open cages, the free children. She came in and smashed a fist at Sal. Sal ducked and the fist whistled over her head. The plaster behind Sal was powdered by the blow. Manchu came to the door, bleeding from his mouth and nose and wavering on his feet. Gondel, Schnell, he shouted, beckoning at the children. Both kids rushed toward him without hesitation. Mother Goose stomped the floor hard with one dainty foot. The house lurched and rose at an angle that had nothing in common with the horizon. The kids were thrown back away from the door and a chance at escape. Manchu, clinging to the doorway, grabbed for one of their hands but missed. Perry caught them instead before they could fall over the edge and into the sizzling hearth. The boy by a belt loop and the girl by her wrist. He pushed them back up the sloped floor toward Manchu. The witch rounded on Perry now and tried to block the children from scrambling toward Manchu. Flank her, Sal cried. She looked around for something to use as a weapon. There was nothing but the fragments of those bone cages and they looked too brittle to be of any help. Sal tugged at the witch's arm, but she might as well have been made of stone. Still, the ploy worked as a distraction, if not an attack. Mother Goose turned toward her again. Sal stumbled back and around until she reached the far side of the open hearth. Mother Goose rose tall, reaching for Sal's throat across the empty space. Then Perry pushed the witch into the pit with one well-placed foot. A pillar of flame erupted, consuming the last of the cages, setting the roof on fire. Sal gasped for breath. Get them out, she shouted. Manchu took the boy and jumped from the doorway toward relative safety. Sal eased the girl out after into Manchu's waiting arms. And then Mother Goose rose from the fire, glowing red and flaming. She said something incomprehensible, something low and awful in the language of fire. Come and get me, Perry taunted her. Sal's gaze darted around the cottage again. Still no weapons, but usually there was a book or perhaps an artifact, something that could help to eliminate the threat. Ashes fell from the burning ceiling and into her hair. Sal batted them away, then looked up to be sure nothing worse was about to fall. She saw the stone figure of a woman, the stone figure of Mother Goose. The leather cords that held it in place were frayed and thin. Sal tore off her shirt and covered her hands so she could snatch the Venus figurine as it swung madly from the burning ceiling. The stone figure writhed and steamed in her grasp, and the larger version, the living one, hissed like a volcano. Sal ran to the door and jumped. It was a surprisingly long fall and her shins ached on impact. The house had sprouted legs again while she was captive in there. Mother Goose appeared in the doorway, ready to follow her out. The children ran toward Sal. The boy pushed Sal's burden to the ground, then began to scoop up loam around and under the figurine to bury it. The girl helped, frantically gouging fistfuls of dirt and packing them on top of the artifact. The stone doll hissed and shrieked with every handful that covered it. Above them, the witch screamed in harmony, in agony. When the figure was completely covered with a thin layer of earth, the witch vanished, and so too did the house. Sal and the children continued to bury the figurine deeper, as deep as they thought was wise, and then a little deeper still. Machu brought stones to build a cairn over it to prevent a chance unearthing from happening again. At last, 
Sal looked around and realized something was amiss, missing. Where's Perry? She asked. There was a square shadow of ash where the house had been. And Perry had been inside the house when it vanished. She walked the perimeter. Perry? She called. Perry, are, are you? Menchu had each hand on the head of one child, a benediction for their safety. Yeah, I'm sorry, he said. We have to get these children back to their parents. But then we can return to look for him, save him if we have to. Sal squinted at the sun. No, she said. I don't think he needs rescuing. I feel like he just left. He's fine. Special angel powers? Menchu asked. Special sister knowledge, Sal replied. Magdalena ran to the children the moment they emerged into the police command center. She knelt down to squeeze them in her arms fervently. She could not have been more frantic if she had birthed them herself. It's too mere so late, she sobbed. The children wrapped their arms around her, too. Clearly all had been forgiven on their part. Sylvester joined in the hugs, then began looking over their ashy faces and dirty hands, exclaiming over each mark. Counselor Rapalin appraised Sal and Father Menchu with something midway between respect and astonishment. How much of it is true, she asked them. Menchu ducked his head, apologetic. All I can say is, perhaps you will not be missing children in the woods again for a while, he said. A while? Rapalin's nostrils flared. Perhaps you once received a message from the police counselor who came before you, Menchu said. Perhaps you should leave such a message for the ones who come after you as well. Rapalin weighed him and judged him a final time. I see, she said at last. Thank you for your assistance. Father Menchu turned towards Sal the moment they were out of earshot of the swarming police. I apologize if this is the wrong moment to ask, but I need you to tell me everything you know about Perry and Asante, he asked. Anything he said or hinted at, anything that you didn't understand but ignored, any mention of Hannah or London or Team Four. Sal boggled. Team Four? What's going on? Asante and your brother have been up to something together, Manchu said. What? Manchu's shoulders bowed from the weight of decades of secrets kept and obligations upheld. Magic. Deep under London, in a little used space in the British Museum, Anna crouched in the darkness with the sphinx-guarded ostrich egg. This was a task that would require care and patience. But what was she if not infinitely patient? She checked her tools one last time to be sure she had everything close to hand. The tiny bowl of sawdust, the spool of hair-thin copper wire, the knife, she placed these items in an arc around her, each one easy to reach. And then she began the ritual. She warmed the ancient egg in her hands for a while, holding it close to her stomach. Slowly, the chill left its shell. Then she began to fill the vessel with the breath and life she had taken from the poor, benighted creature she had woken in St. Peter's tomb, mingled and made whole with the essences of power she had ingested from the cave paintings, from the werewolves, from the portal in Guatemala. She pressed her lips to the top and exhaled through her mouth, Gerald's mouth, untangling the creature from herself slowly, slowly. 
The seething white vapor that emerged from her lungs whispered words never before heard in this place. She was filled with a kind of homesickness. But perhaps her work here would be done soon. The sphinxes on the shell began to writhe in pain and sound an alarm, but their keening was no use. Anna ignored them. They were guardians, but there was nobody left to heed their alarm. Certainly not here. Eventually, the egg was full. The mist curled out of its openings, clawing for a freedom it was not yet ready to endure. It was time to seal it closed and let the spirit within incubate. Anna took the sharp knife from the table beside her and carefully removed the skin from her limbs, or more properly, from Gerald's arms and legs. She pasted the strips onto the egg, covering its holes, and then the entirety of the surface with a bloody version of paper mache. When her work was complete, the sphinxes shuddered and fell silent. Anna set the egg down and sat patiently beside it. Blood trickled from the skin places on her body and pooled beneath her, but that was of no matter. She would need a new hoe soon anyway. The egg smoked and sizzled as the heat within charred the scraps of skin that coated it. It wobbled faintly. And then the sides split apart, not in the crazed patterns of a broken shell, but the straight, clean lines of a new blossom. Its petals curled open until a white lotus rested before her. In its center, was something new and old, an ancient spark transformed and awoken into power. An old thing, an enormous thing, whose tiniest edge had now been brought into this world. At first, it was nothing more than a breath of flame, hardly as solid as the mist it had quickened from. She fed it tiny grains of sawdust, one at a time, slowly, slowly, so as not to smother it. With each morsel, the creature shone just a hair brighter and grew just a hair larger. When it was the size of an almond, she began to feed it metal. She gave it the tip of the thin copper wire. The creature's heat melted the wire into drops that had burned up greedily, a crude simulacrum of nursing at a mother's teat. The spool became so hot that Hannah's hands, Gerald's hands, began to burn. The knot creature darted forward and snapped at her fingers, searing away chunks of meat with its tiny teeth of flame. Ah, it was ready for more. She took it in one hand and brought it to her flayed arms, letting it have its fill of Gerald's raw and bleeding flesh. It feasted, and it grew. Anna's thoughts strayed forward, toward her hopes for this fledgling creature. It would retreat soon after its meal vanishing back into the ocean of magic to gather the strength it would need. Once it had digested this meal, it would be ready to come through again, take a physical form, and do the great and noble work she had set before it. It was a delicate thing, yet fragile and new, but it would grow fast, and soon it would devour nations. A high price, but one Hana was determined to pay without regret. It was nothing more nor less than the cost of saving this world. The world that she had helped to make. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.